Chapter Two of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Crake. Chapter Two. There is not a more hackneyed subject for poetic enthusiasm than that sight, perhaps the loveliest in nature, a young mother with her first-born child. And perhaps because it is so lovely, and is ever renewed in its beauty, the world never tires of dwelling thereupon. Any poet, painter, or sculptor would certainly have raved about Mrs. Rothsay, had he seen her in the days of convalescence, sitting at the window with her baby on her knee. She furnished that rare sight, and one that is becoming rarer as the world grows older, an exquisitely beautiful woman. Would there were more of such, that the idea of physical beauty might pass into the heart through the eyes, and bring with it the ideal of the soul's perfection, which our senses can only thus receive. So great is this influence, so unconsciously do we associate the type of spiritual with material beauty, that perhaps the world might have been purer and better, if its onward progress in what it calls civilization had not so nearly destroyed the fair mould of symmetry and loveliness which tradition celebrates. It would have done any one's heart good only to look at Sibylla Rothsay. She was a creature to watch from a distance and then to go away and dream of, wondering whether she were a woman or a spirit. As for describing her it is almost impossible, but let us try. She was very small in stature and proportions, quite a little fairy. Her cheek had the soft peachy hue of girlhood, nay, of very childhood. You would never have thought her a mother. She lay back, half buried in the great armchair, and then, suddenly springing up from amidst the cloud of white muslins and laces that enveloped her, she showed her young, blithe face. "'I will not have that cap, Elspie. I am not an invalid now, and I don't choose to be an old matron yet,' she said, in a pretty, willful way, as she threw off the ugly, ponderous production of her nurse's active fingers, and exhibited her beautiful head. It was indeed a beautiful head, exquisite in shape, with masses of light brown hair folded round it. The little rosy ear peeped out, forming the commencement of that rare and dainty curve of chin and throat, so pleasant to an artist's eye, a beauty to be lingered over among all other beauties. Then the delicately outlined mouth, the lips folded over in a lovely gravity that seemed ready each moment to melt away into smiles. Her nose—but who would destroy the romance of a beautiful woman by such an illusion? Of course Mrs. Rothsay had a nose but it was so entirely in harmony with the rest of her face that you never thought whether it were Roman, Grecian, or Aquiline. Her eyes. She has two eyes, so soft and brown, she gives a side glance and looks down. But was there a soul in this exquisite form? You never asked, you hardly cared. You took the thing for granted, and whether it were so or not, you felt that the world, and yourself especially, ought to be thankful for having looked at so lovely an image if only to prove that the earth still possessed such a thing as ideal beauty, and you forgave all the men in every age that have run mad for the same. Sometimes, perchance, you would pause a moment, to ask if this magic were real, and remember the calm, holy airs that breathed from the presence of some woman, beautiful only in her soul. But then you never would have looked upon Sibylla Rothsay as a woman at all, only a flesh-and-blood fairy, a Venus de Medici transmuted from the stone. Perhaps this was the way in which Captain Angus Rothsay contrived to fall in love with Sibylla Hyde, until he woke from the dream to find his seraph of beauty, a baby bride, pouting like a vexed child, because in their sudden elopement she had neither wedding bonnet nor Brussels veil. And now she was a baby mother, 
playing with her infant as, not so very long since, she had played with her doll, twisting its tiny fingers and making them close tightly round her own, which were quite as elfin-like, comparatively. For Mrs. Rothsay's surpassing beauty included beautiful hands and feet, a blessing which nature, often niggardly in her gifts, does not always extend to pretty women, but bestows it on those who have infinitely more reason to be thankful for the boon. "'See, Nurse Elsby,' said Mrs. Rothsay, laughing in her childish way, "'see how fast the little creature holds my finger. Really, I think a baby is a very pretty thing, and it will be so nice to play with until Angus comes home.' Elsby turned round from the corner where she sat sewing, and looked with a half-suppressed sigh at her master's wife, whose delicate English beauty and quick, ringing English voice formed such a strong contrast to herself, and were so opposed to her own peculiar prejudices. But she had learned to love the young creature nevertheless, and for the thousandth time she smothered the half-unconscious thought that Captain Angus might have chosen better. "'Children are a blessing frae the Lord, as maybe you'll see any of these days, Mrs. Rothsay,' said Elsby gravely. "'You maun take them as they're sent, and mak the best of them.' Mrs. Rothsay laughed merrily. "'Thank you, Elsby, for giving me such a solemn speech, just like one of my husband's. To put me in mind of him, I suppose, as if there were any need for that. Dear Angus, I wonder what he will say to his little daughter when he sees her, the new Miss Rothsay, who has come in opposition to the old Miss Rothsay. Ha, ha! The old Miss Rothsay, she's your husband's aunt, observed Elsby, feeling it necessary to stand up for the honour of the family. Miss Flora was a comely lady aunt, as are the Rothsays were. And this Miss Rothsay will be too, I hope, though she is such a little brown thing now. But people say that the brownest babies grow the fairest in time, eh, nurse? They do say that, replied Elsby, with another and a heavier sigh, as she bent closer over her work. Mrs. Rothsay went on in her blithe chatter. I half wished for a boy, as Captain Rothsay thought it would please his uncle, but that's of no consequence. He will be quite satisfied with a girl, and so am I. Of course she will be a beauty, my dear little baby." And with a deeper mother-love piercing through her childish pleasure, she bent over the infant, then took it up, awkwardly and comically enough, as though it were a toy she was afraid of breaking, and rocked it to and fro on her breast. Elsby started up. "'Tuck tent! Tuck tent! You'll hurt it, maybe, the poor wee! Oh, what was I going to say?' "'Don't trouble yourself,' said the young mother, with a charming assumption of matronly dignity. "'I shall hold the baby safe. I know all about it." And she really did succeed in lulling the child to sleep, which was no sooner accomplished than she recommenced her pleasant musical chatter, partly addressed to her nurse, but chiefly the unconscious overflow of a simple nature which could not conceal a single thought. "'I wonder what I shall call her, the darling. We must not wait until her papa comes home. She can't be baby for three years. I shall have to decide on her name myself. Oh, what a pity, I, who never could decide anything. Poor dear Angus! He does all. He had even to fix the wedding day." And her musical laugh, another rare charm that she possessed, caused Elsby to look round with mingled pity and affection. "'Come, nurse, you can help me, I know. I am puzzling my poor head for a name to give this young lady here. It must be a very pretty one. I wonder what Angus would like. A family name, perhaps, after one of those old Rothsays that you and he make so much of.' "'Oh, Mrs. Rothsay! And are ye no proud o' your husband's family?" "'Yes, very proud, especially as I have none of my own. He took me, an orphan, without a single tie in the wide world, he took me into his warm, loving arms." Here her voice faltered, 
and a sweet womanly tenderness softened her eyes. "'God bless my noble husband. I am proud of him, and of his people, and of all his race. So come,' she added, her childish manner reviving, "'tell me of the remarkable women in the Rothsay family for the last five hundred years. You know all about them, Elsby. Surely we'll find one to be a namesake for my baby.' Elsby, pleased and important, began eagerly to relate long traditions about the Lady Christina Rothsay, who was a witch, and a great friend of Maister Michael Scott, and how, with spells, she caused her seven stepsons to pine away and die, also the Lady Isabel, who let her lover down from her bower window with the long strings of her golden hair, and how her brother found and slew him, whence she laid a curse on all the line who had golden hair and such never prospered, but died unmarried and young. "'I hope the curse has passed away now,' gaily said the young mother, "'and that the latest scion will not be a golden-tressed damsel. Yet look here,' and she touched the soft down beneath her infant's cap, which might, by a considerable exercise of imagination, be called hair. "'It is yellow, you see, Elsby, but I'll not believe your tradition. My child shall be both beautiful and beloved.' Smitten with a sudden pang, poor Elsby cried, Oh, my lady, didn't I think of the future, didn't I? And she stopped, confused. Really, how strange you are! But go on. We'll have no more Christina's nor Isabel's. Hurriedly, Elsby continued to relate the histories of noble Jean Rothsay, who died by an arrow aimed at her husband's heart, and Alison, her sister, the beauty of James V's reckless court, who was no good and Mistress Catherine Rothsay, who hid two of the prince's soldiers after Culloden, and stood with a pair of pistols before their bolted door. "'Nay, I'll have none of these. They frighten me,' said Sibylla. "'I wonder I ever had courage to marry the descendant of such awful women. No, my sweet innocent, you shall not be christened after them,' she continued, stroking the baby cheek with her soft finger. "'You shall not be like them at all, except in their beauty. And they were all handsome, were they, Elsby?' Ne'er any other Rothsay line, man or woman, that was not fair to see. Then so will my baby be, like her father, I hope, or just a little like her mother, who is not so very ugly either. At least Angus says not. And Mrs. Rothsay drew up her tiny figure, patted one dainty hand, the wedded one, with its fairy fellow, and then, touched perhaps with a passing melancholy that he who most prized her beauty, and for whose sake she most prized it herself, was far away, she leaned back and sighed. However, in a few minutes she cried out, her words showing how light and wandering was the reverie. "'Elsby, I have a thought. The baby shall be christened Olive.' "'It's a strange heathen name, Mrs. Rothsay.' "'Not at all. Listen how I chanced to think of it. This very morning, just before you came to waken me, I had such a queer, delicious dream.' "'Dream? Are you sure it was in the morning tide?' cried Elsby, aroused into interest. "'Yes, and so it certainly means something, you will say, Elsby.' Well, it was about my baby. She was then lying fast asleep in my bosom, and her warm, soft breathing soon sent me to sleep, too. I dreamt that somehow I had gradually let her go from me, so that I felt her in my arms no more, and I was very sad, and cried out how cruel it was for anyone to steal my child, until I found I had let her go of my own accord. Then I looked up, after a while, and saw standing at the foot of the bed a little angel, a child angel with a green olive branch in its hand. It told me to follow, so I rose up, and followed it over a wide desert country, and across rivers and among wild beasts, but at every peril the child held out the olive branch and we passed on safely. 
and when I felt weary, and my feet were bleeding with the rough journey, the little angel touched them with the olive and I was strong again. At last we reached a beautiful valley, and the child said, You are quite safe now. I answered, And who is my beautiful comforting angel? Then the white wings fell off, and I only saw a sweet child's face, which bore something of Angus's likeness and something of my own, and the little one stretched out her hands and said, Mother! While Mrs. Rothsay spoke, her thoughtless manner had once more softened into deep feeling. Elsbee watched her with wondering eagerness. "'It was nae dream. It was a vision. God send it true,' said the old woman, solemnly. "'I know not. Angus always laughed at my dreams, but I have a strange feeling whenever I think of this. Oh, Elsbee, you can't tell how sweet it was. And so I should like to call my baby Olive, for the sake of the beautiful angel. It may be foolish, but tis a fancy of mine. Olive Rothsay. It sounds well, and Olive Rothsay she shall be. Amen. And may she be an angel till ye ah her days? And you'll mind the blessed dream and love her ever mare. Oh, my sweet Letty, promise me that she will, cried the nurse, approaching her mistress's chair, while two great tears stole down her hard cheeks. Of course I shall love her dearly. What made you doubt it? Because I am so young? Nay, I have a mother's heart, though I am only eighteen. Come, Elsby, do let us be merry. Send these drops away." And she patted the old withered face with her little hand. Was it not you who told me the saying? It's ill greeting over a newborn ween? There, don't I succeed charmingly in your northern tongue. What a winning little creature she was, this young wife of Angus Rothsay. A pity he had not seen her, the old Highland uncle, Miss Flora's brother, who had disinherited his nephew and promised heir for bringing him a Sassenach niece. "'A charming scene of maternal felicity. I am quite sorry to intrude upon it,' said a bland voice at the door, as Dr. Johnson put in his shining bald head. Mrs. Rothsay welcomed him in her graceful, cordial way. She was so ready to cling to everyone who showed her kindness, and he had been very kind, so kind that, with her usual quick impulses, she had determined to stay and live at Stirling until her husband's return from Jamaica. She told Dr. Johnson so now, and moreover, as an earnest of the friendship which she, accustomed to be loved by everyone, expected from him, she requested him to stand godfather to her little babe. "'She shall be christened after our English fashion, doctor, and her name shall be Olive. What do you think of her now? Is she growing prettier?' The doctor bowed a smiling assent, and walked to the window. Thither Elsby followed him. You maun tell her the truth, I dorna. Ye will? And she clutched his arm with eager anxiety. And oh, for good sake, say it safely, kindly. He shook her off with an uneasy look. He had never felt in a more disagreeable position. Mrs. Rothsay called him back again. I think, doctor, her features are improving. She will certainly be a beauty. I should break my heart if she were not. And what would Angus say? Come, what are you and Elsby talking about so mysteriously? "'My dear madam—' "'Hem,' began Dr. Johnson, "'I do hope, indeed I am sure, your child will be a good child, and a great comfort to both her parents.' "'Certainly. But how grave you are about it!' "'I have a painful duty—a very painful duty,' he replied, but Elsby pushed him aside. "'You're just a fool, man. You'll kill her. Say your say at once.' The young mother turned deadly pale. "'Say what, Elsby? What is he going to tell me? Angus!' "'No, no, my darling Letty, your husband's safe?' And Elsby flung herself on her knees beside the chair. "'But the lassie, dinna fear, for it's the will o' God, and for good nae doubt. Your sweet wee doctor as—' "'Is, I grieve to say it, 
"'Deformed,' added Dr. Johnson. The poor mother gazed incredulously on him, on the nurse, and lastly on the sleeping child. Then, without a word, she fell back, and fainted in Elspie's arms. End of chapter 2